Welcome to the Battleground Wisconsin. My name is Matt Bruskin. I'm the Deputy Director here at Citizen Action of Wisconsin. And welcome to another spring Wisconsin day, which we record here on Thursday. It is vintage Wisconsin spring day, which means it looks just this side of winter. Robert Craig is with us. Robert, the Executive Director here at Citizen Action. Robert, good to have you. Greetings, everyone. You know, Wisconsin transitional spring. It was a nice last weekend, <laughs> but now it's back to the transitional. Oh, good Lord. It's, uh, it's, it's been one of those stretches here where you sometimes scratch your head and say, why, why? But um, we're not far, folks, from everyone remembering why this state is so amazing to live in uh, uh, when this uh, spring really does hit in summer. So, folks, we have a we have a busy schedule today. We've got a couple of guests. We're going to be joined by Hannah Ferris from In These Times to talk about all the amazing union organizing that's going on in Starbucks. We probably won't be able to capture it all because it is um, growing, including um, just yesterday announced here in Oak Creek, another Starbucks store organized. Congratulations. We'll talk more about that with Hannah. We're also going to be joined again by Tobita Chow. Um, and uh, uh, Tobita is going to talk more about an article on the American prospect around um, his position around China and uh, trying to keep an eye on Democrats in particular, but just politicians and uh, anti-China, China bashing and unproductive approaches to how we actually talk about China. Um, so we'll, we look forward to having Tobita on later. But Robert... Going to get started. Want to remind our listeners we have our brew fest coming up again. Um, we mentioned it last week. We want to remind everybody uh, Wednesday, June 22nd, this is going to be in Milwaukee at our new office. Um, we have a new link up now. We'll have it up where you can go and sign up and um, uh, make an R RSVP to come uh, to, to the brew fest. Robert, just anything else you want to say about that before we jump into your favorite topic? the Marquette Law Poll. I promise we won't sound like public radio at Pledge Drive <laughs> and delay from getting to topics. I'll just say this is uh, one of the best times for progressives um, in, in the whole Milwaukee region and beyond because it is more festive. It is in, and there is, of course, Wisconsin's favorite alcoholic beverage, uh, beer involved. So we're going to have a lot of changes. People are, I think this will be a, a very festive one, given that we've been, had to be virtual the last two years due to COVID and get to see our brand new office that hopefully will be generating huge amounts of organizing in Milwaukee. It's very centrally located and very better, much better organizing office than our previous office in Walker's Point. So Robert, we're going to get off of that. Folks, come on out, get out. We'll see you Wednesday, June 22nd in the evening. Robert, your favorite topic, the Marquette poll. It uh, comes around every once in a while. Uh, <laughs> it's election season. It'll probably be uh, monthly, possibly from here on out. Uh, and just we'll remind our listeners or our new listeners. Um, I like to talk about the Marquette poll because it's, well, it is now the only really poll that comes out fairly consistency where there's tracking. You can look at some things over time and we'll talk about that. Uh, and also just because I enjoy every once in a while uh, having Robert both remind us about the limitations of polling uh, and particularly uh, polling on races like Robert, the races this fall, the new poll <laughs> uh, basically says we've got a dead heat on the Democratic side, a dead heat that 
we've been seeing sort of coming every poll. Alex Lazary gets a little closer to Mandela Barnes. It's now within the margin of error. The poll found 19% uh, supporting Mandela Barnes in the August primary. 16, Alex Lazary. Uh, Sarah Godlewski showed seven with Tom Nelson at five. So those two remain um, getting anything, something above one. <laughs> but we're essentially still a Lazary Barnes race and within the margin of error. Robert, any thoughts on this? Any of the other numbers? Rebecca Clayfish continues to dominate. She's at like 33%, uh, and uh, no one else really much above 10. Robert. So, a new candidate, the establishment candidate, apparently Tommy Thompson, surrogate Tim Michaels, the businessman, is now in, and he, it was too, he's too recent an entrance to be in this poll. So, that's important to know. We'll see. If there's anything left of the non-Trumpy uh, Republican establishment, I'm guessing not. I don't um, see that there's enough oxygen for a guy like Michaels. And by the way, the Michaels candidacy is a joke. I'm just going to say it. It's it's an it's it's laughable. But anyways, Robert, I okay. Uh, well, we shall see. Yes. Uh, I, I don't claim to understand the, the Republican <laughs> base anymore. Uh, so. Just about first about polling generally before we 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 follow all the lemmings and, and act like this is the, the biggest news story. Uh, <laughs> just like unfair maps are so undemocratic, it's hard to say we have a democracy when the state legislature is a foregone conclusion and, and it doesn't matter who the candidates are and and what happens with voters or how they perform. The same way, uh, all of the harping of the national media about the Democrats being underwater in polls is what is it doing? It's making it much more likely the Democrats will lose in the midterm election. So this focus on polls becomes a reality that makes the polls more likely to be true. In other words, they're not just, and they're not really like a, like a full election. Their samples, the samples are all often wrong. And in Wisconsin, especially where they've been wrong about seven by about seven points in the last two presidential elections. And just about this poll, the margin of error is six. Okay, that's huge in polling. And the biggest number is not who's moving around in the Democratic primary for US Senate. It's that 48% have no clue who they're gonna support, okay? And all it shows is, okay, if Alex Lathery spends $4 million and he's running against a candidate, Mandela Barnes, whose advantage is mostly name recognition, and they don't know, people, voters don't know that much about Mandela either, then if you spend the $4 million, that gap will, will decrease and you will move up in the polls. And Sarah Godlewski, a smaller amount because she is spending a million dollars, though I think her, I'm not sure that's all spent yet. The ad started more recently. But the point is, it's just, it's obvious and it proves nothing. We do not know the dynamic of this race yet. Mandela Barnes has raised a lot of money and has not started his TV yet. Yeah, I, look, I, I think that's accurate. I was going to also point out the uh, don't know number. And by the way, it's worth pointing out 46% of Republicans also don't know. So while, while there's opportunity for movement there, when, when you have Clayfish at 32% and nobody really above 10, that's looking a lot more defined. Uh, and Clayfish, let's be honest, is comes out of the uh, Republican establishment. Um, but it and is she's worth moving. She's moving right. She oh, is now, totally. She is now, she had said that she thought that uh, 
Joe Biden had won the election. Uh, she is now changing her tune. And I know we'll get to another topic around uh, how the former disgraced president is also enforcing that edict upon the legislature. But that, I don't well, want to get ahead of ourselves. Robert, what's interesting, you know, if, if Clayfish is definitely she she took it all in this week, came out, declared that the election, you know, that it was it should you know, you can't trust the results, which is a lie. It's just she lied this week. OK, but Robert Rantham, as bad as this polling is, it is worth noting he got four percent. Right. Even within the margin of error at best, he's 10 percent. And, you know, Nicholson's at 10. Like. What's what's she afraid of? Right. Like at some level, if if it's about trying to get through a primary and worrying like she seems uniquely suited to maybe be able to make it through without having to do all that nonsense and, and well, possibly risk losing to, to Governor Evers, who she's trying to call a radical liberal, which is, just, you know, it's like that doesn't even smack as being if correct. You're, if you're coasting in your head and one of the major game changers out there would be the twice impeached former president in, uh, <laughs> endorsing against you, then you probably need to cover your bases there. That's what I, and also uh, the, the Marquette poll also showed that um, there is that while Republicans as a whole are not intense around the big steel thing, uh, the ones that are are far more likely to vote and are more engaged in the race. So in other words, the primary would be dominated by people who think the election was stolen, of course, if you if you believe yeah. this poll. Well, Robert, the one other thing uh, that I definitely that's related to what you just brought up there, right? And want to get your thoughts on before we go to break is is the whole party of trump this is i mean and we saw it this week play out here in wisconsin where trump weighed in and well, it's before, very before, very clear voss voss changed his position i know we only have a minute left in this segment let me just say one more thing about the poll yeah before we can get to that in the, in the future segment and that is Inflation's by far the top issue. And remember, the media harping on inflation is how they don't that stop happen. talking about it. It's not the whole economy. It's all they talk about. And then that means that the, the incredible performance of Biden economically is completely un, not understood by voters. And of course, inflation is going to be tough anyway. It's so visible and clear to people as they shop. And the second thing is concern with COVID is near the bottom. As we have not done what we need to do to vaccinate the world or contain this pandemic. So I think uh, COVID is definitely, regardless of what any public health experts say, and they can't get their act together either and have a consistent message, um, is going to let her rip. And hopefully one of these new variants will not be more deadly because there is no guarantee it will not be. Folks, we're going to take our first break. When we come back, we're going to be joined with Hannah Ferris with In These Times to talk about the amazing organizing that's going on around the country in Starbucks and, quite frankly, the service industry more broadly. You're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. We are really fortunate to be joined again. We've had Hannah Ferris on once before. Hannah's with In These Times. Hannah, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, Hannah, we, we asked you to come on because you have, uh, last month you wrote, an ex it was a very long piece about, and an in-depth piece about the workers who are organizing at Starbucks uh, in different places around the country. And that has um, uh, really 
resonated with folks. And that includes here in Wisconsin, where there is active organizing uh, and including a successful campaign just yesterday. So Hannah, tell us a little bit more about uh, what you've been covering and uh, around the Starbucks workers organizing around the country. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Sorry, can you repeat the first part of the question? I think it cut out for a second. Sure. Um, so essentially, you've had an opportunity to, you know, did an in-depth story with and on mm -hmm. these Starbucks workers. Just tell us a little bit more about the story that you wrote and just why uh, this organizing drive is so important. Uh, and and, mm -hmm. and this, these workers are so unique. And this is at, at this moment to have these service workers organizing. So yeah, uh, the gist of it is Starbucks workers, uh, cafe by cafe, are organizing unions. They're affiliating with Workers United, um, with the sort of regional chapters of Workers United, which is an affiliate of SEIU. This began um, kind of properly back in August when stores in Buffalo started organizing a drive with Workers United, winning their election in December. And since then, the number of stores that have filed for unions has just skyrocketed, um, in some cases, like doubling month to month. Um, when we first wrote this story, when we published it mid-March, I believe there were uh, just over 100 stores that had filed for elections. And I think less than six had won their elections. By now, um, as of a couple of days, over 220 stores have filed for elections. And I believe over 24 have won yeah, including the one yesterday in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. So it's just a campaign um, that has, you know, a really exciting amount of momentum and is all uh, from, you know, the conversations I've had with workers and organizers, you know, almost all, it is entirely worker-led. Uh, the sort of national group Starbucks Workers United that these stores are affiliated with is completely run by uh, partners, which is what Starbucks calls, you know, their employees. Um, completely run by partners, you know, originally just the partners in Buffalo, and now it's spread to just this national network. So that's really like broad strokes, a kind of sense of where things are at. To give an update on Wisconsin, as we said, the Oak Creek store won yesterday, and I believe there are four other locations uh, in Wisconsin that have pending elections um, and more, you know, organizing and filing every day. So it's just a really, really exciting campaign that has seen uh, just a tremendous amount of wins in a really short amount of time. So Hannah, you're saying the Oak Creek uh, election was successful. So there's a union in Oak, in Oak Creek, Wisconsin now. Yes. Mm -hmm. That is awesome news. Mm -hmm. I want that to pass by our listeners. That is awesome news. And that's not, that's a fairly moderate area. That's not like in the middle of, you know, the, the deep blue belt of uh, the Milwaukee area. That's a you know Southern suburb. Uh, but I was going to ask you, I mean, there's some very interesting features to this whole organizing campaign. I mean, mm -hmm. it, it, it's been well documented that Starbucks actually had this conceit that they were treating workers better and giving them a better deal than, say, the service industry. And so it, it, this would not have been something you would pick out on a battle plan as the, mo the, the most degraded workers. But the problem is, is that all retail being relatively better isn't very good, especially during the pandemic. And the second thing is it seems to be indicating a new style of organizing in our, in our technological age uh, with, with modern communications, because it was not because of all the union busting where there's not really free and fair elections uh, 
in, in union elections, which means you're really doing incredible if you, if you win these elections. Um, unions were planning out you know, from a central location, big national organizing strategies, putting lots of organizers in play. And kind of, it was almost like, you know, a, a, you need a war plan to do it. Whereas this was much more viral where workers just started doing it. And Workers United has been able to provide support to them, but to not have to surge lots of organizers each location. In other words, to be able to use Zoom and social media and the workers have been uh, talking to each other across all these stores and sharing information. And so it seems like a much more viral style of organizing that's much harder for a big company like Starbucks to cope with because it's not uh, mono on mono a union invades their stores and they and they mobilize all of their union busting forces. So they, 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 I, I think your reporting uh, made that clear to me, but want to have your thoughts on it. Yeah, no, I think um, it's a very like succinct way to to sort of describe it. Uh, it. The whole thing is very organic. And I think we wrote this in the piece, um, but when that first Buffalo store organized or when that organizing began, you know, there was no intention on behalf of Workers United launch a national campaign, right? Um, what had happened was workers at that store saw what a union had done for other cafes uh, in the Buffalo community and said, you know, we want this too. And the visibility alone um, their campaign, both their win and what uh, Starbucks corporate put them through by way of union busting, uh, did so much to spur um, action within other workers and other stores. It did so much to ignite campaigns in their own stores. You know, they saw one, it is possible to do this and win to this company that does claim to, you know, treat us like partners, treat us like a family, you know, care for us, give us these benefits, yada, yada, yada. Um, yeah, they're so willing at the drop of a hat to, you know, fire people, to cut hours, to, to you know, hold captive audience meetings. They're, they're so quick to, to flip um, on workers. And this sort of advent of social media, people being really public about what was happening to uh, Buffalo workers during their campaign. And then, you know, Memphis workers, workers in Arizona, et cetera, um, people being really transparent about the union busting that was happening in their stores um, also did a lot, I think, to, to spur action on organizing in other places. And yeah, you had also mentioned, um, you know, there are these massive Zoom meetings where partners and the organizers from Workers United are holding these massive, almost like organizer training sessions to help partners uh, connect with and begin these conversations with other partners in stores in their communities that maybe haven't, uh, you know, begun this process yet. So it's really just using every tool uh, at their command and utilizing it so well to keep building this network and keep having these conversations. This is super to the point and interesting. I'm uh, I'm a former union organizer. I worked for SEIU, so I was similar to what Robert was mentioning, worked on a lot of organizing campaigns and especially in the nineties and was always struck as an organizer, why the service sector, why weren't we organizing this? Why was the service sector not organizing? It was the workers who were most in need. It was growing and it was sort of like, it was everything that was, I don't want to say wrong with the labor movement, but problematic where it wasn't growing you had this giant growing service sector and very little organizing going on it, virtually no successful organizing. 
And I know as an organizer, how hard it is to beat an anti-union campaign and what you just talked about in terms of the way you, you can use the digital tools, both to have meetings where you don't have to get everyone actually physically in the same space, but also get out information about what the boss is doing with anti-union activity, which is one of the hardest things to do is to expose that and to get all the workers to understand this is going to happen. So when it happens, you're much more prepared to deal with it. And that's one of the more effective things that a boss or an employer like Starbucks can do. And it's just amazing to see the tools now that are available to, 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 to do that. Um, it's just, it, it it's powerful because I, I could see how that would be super important. And it reverses, as Robert said, and you've talked about the workers sort of driving and leading the process because you can't have a real functioning union in a workplace if it's not owned by the workers. And so it's very powerful. Um, tell us, Hannah, I guess, where do you, where do you see this going next or just because we're in this stage now where there is Workers United and there are some more formal SEIU helping support that, um, how this you know, is expected to continue. What's your expectations on where this is headed um, in this new dynamic era of union organizing? So, you know, as far as expectations, um, you know, this is a campaign like so many organizers have told me, like we've never seen before. Um, and it is, it is quite early, uh, but the hope certainly is that this momentum obviously keeps going and building, you know, that we keep seeing a doubling of places filing and elections happening every month. Uh, there are over 9,000 cafes um, at Starbucks, right? So there's certainly a long way to go. Um, but beyond that, beyond, you know, Starbucks becoming, you know, a union chain, um, workers I've spoken to and organizers expect and hope and have, are, are already seeing this momentum spread to other cafes, other work in the service industry. Uh, there is a cafe right now in Detroit, uh, Michigan, that launched a recognition strike back in February, uh, Great Lakes Coffee Roasters. And they, uh, in part, attribute their desire to you know, formally launch a union campaign to the success they've seen at Starbucks. Starbucks workers have told me they've been contacted by all other kinds of folks in other food service and retail industries that they hope to see, you know, the roasteries, which two of the three roasteries in the U.S. have now unionized. Um, I hope to see the roasteries continue, hope to see this just spread to the, the greater coffee industry, the farmers, the manufacturers, et cetera. So, yeah, all that is to say, um, I think the sort of immediate hope the thing everyone is focusing on now is just getting more stores organized so with that we'll be right back after the break with a few more minutes with hannah ferris from in these times you're listening to the battleground wisconsin welcome back to the battleground wisconsin we are talking about the amazing and impressive organizing that's going on in starbucks and of course What's happening in Starbucks, Hannah mentioned already, is spreading to other cafes and other, the service industries. Uh, Amazon is getting a lot of attention, of course. Robert, next question for Hannah. You know, we talk a lot on Battleground Wisconsin, Hannah, about the unfairness of elections. How, for example, the courts have now made it so that we know how the Wisconsin legislature 
how those elections will turn out, who will control the legislature, and the Republicans are guaranteed at least 63 seats out of 99. And I wanted to talk a little bit about, because I think this is that the public information on this to the general public is far less understood, and that is what has happened over the last several decades to make winning union drives under federal labor law, which used to be quite easy when the laws were created, and that was the intent of the law in the 1930s during the New Deal, is now unbelievable. Like you have to go through an incredible ordeal if you're a worker in order to actually win a union. Even then, you may not even get the union because they may not bargain with you fairly, and they can then decertify the union after a year if there's not a first contract. So you can still win and lose. But can you talk a little bit about more about the tactics that was especially taken, though I knew this kind of thing was happening, um, with the surveillance, where suddenly if you uh, if you file for a union drive at a Starbucks, that uh, people, out-of-town managers are coming in, sitting in the store, and trying to look for any violation of, you know, the basically Starbucks policy, and no one follows a long manual to the letter and then firing the workers for it when none of these things, there's always going to be variations in how people do their jobs from store to store. And just uh, that's one example. You also mentioned captive audience means. But anything you want to say about the immense pressure that's put on workers and then how this new viral organizing has allowed them to know what's coming better because they're in contact with other workers across the country and they already know Starbucks's playbook, right? Because it's been done in Buffalo or Seattle. But can you say a little more about just what kind of pressure is put on workers so they understand this is more like Hungarian democracy at best than actual democracy? Totally. So, uh, you know, as you had mentioned, starting with the NLRB election, conversations I've had with organizers uh, and labor historians, you know, one of the big things they stress is that the first step in union busting is forcing workers to go through the NLRB election, right? At this point, it is such a drawn out process. Uh, there are workers in Chicago, for example, that filed for an election uh, at the end of December, some in early January, that only last week got their election date. Uh, so ballots will now go out in May, but that's what, five months um, of waiting, five months of enduring, uh, as you mentioned, the surveillance, the captive audience meetings, these stricter, um, you know, penalties um, and whatnot. But yeah, I guess going into the actual union busting beyond just delaying and delaying uh, an election, I guess a big example would be uh, the Starbucks in Memphis, in which uh, I think we wrote about it quite a bit in the article. But yeah, so uh, the Starbucks in Memphis, where workers had filed, uh, I believe in mid-January, and within a week of filing, four or five new managers, regional managers, district managers, some employees have said they've never seen before in their several years at Starbucks, began showing up and just sitting in the cafe, sitting in the cafe across from the counter and just watching people, right? Uh, within a few weeks of the uh, of organizers filing for the election, seven workers uh, were fired all who were on the bargaining committee or the organizing committee at their stores uh, for, you know, minor policy infractions that management, uh, you know, former management has said, you know, were never previously enforced, right? Um, anything from, I think the, uh, the big example we had gotten was that a worker 
had walked behind the counter after their sh- after their shift took a sip of their drink and signed a union card and were fired for breaking the policy of going behind the counter off shift, which of the workers I've spoken to across cafes across the country, that is an extremely common thing to do and never something people were punished for. Uh, workers are being disciplined for things as minor as tying their apron the wrong way or wearing too many pins. Uh, this really only seems to be happening at stores with, or this is primarily happening at stores with active union campaigns. Um, so that's that's a big part of the union busting along with, uh, as you had mentioned, captive audience meetings or these listening sessions that management will do. And it can be anything from a one-on-one partner and manager. There are stories of three-on-one, uh, three managers, one partner who pull them off the floor, often during the busiest times of the day, during the rush hour, sit them down, uh, give them, quote, you know, facts about the union, which is a lot of kind of thinly veiled language of, oh, nothing's guaranteed in a contract. You could lose your you could lose your hours, you know, threatening people who essentially uh, making workers feel that their livelihoods, um, that their insurance, et cetera, is uh, being threatened. And in some cases, uh, a worker in Oregon was telling me that these meetings were so intense on top of the stress of the job itself that some workers wouldn't be able to return to the floor immediately and would have to just go cry in the back um, because it was just so overwhelming. Um, so there's, and then captive audience meetings where management will take all staff, shut this, shut the store down for some length of time uh, and have these heart to heart conversations where they reaffirm that they're a family and you don't need the sort of big bad union third party coming in the middle of, coming in the middle of that relationship um, and changing things. And, you know, workers are able to, or, you know, workers have wise into a lot of these uh, tactics pretty early on, uh, as you had mentioned. And, you know, through this network, through being very vocal about what's been happening at their stores across social media um, and their organizing channels, they have been able to build up this network of resources to share with each other. So they do all know what's coming. And it really does seem to be by this this playbook every single time. Uh, That's not to say knowing what is going to happen makes it any easier. You know, it's still stressful it's still draining um you know workers are still being fired but but it is helping it is uh helping uh workers at least know or have a sense of what to tell each other uh to prepare each other we really appreciate you taking the time to join us today to talk more in depth about what workers are going through um, and also the success that we're having, because it's really important. There is no way we're going to have a functioning progressive movement if we don't have an active and growing labor movement. So thank you so much also for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, no problem. Thank you for having me and like sharing the story. Because one of the biggest things I was told when working on it is that workers really need as much support from their communities, as many eyes on this uh, and what Starbucks is doing as we can get. So happy to spread the word. Absolutely. It's a hundred percent accurate. Uh, thank you so much, Hannah. We'll, we look forward to talking with you again sometime down the road. Sounds good. Thank Thanks you so much. again, folks. That's Hannah Ferris within these times. We are going to go straight from Hannah to our next guest. We're really fortunate. This is, um, we, Tobita Chow from uh, Justices Global is with us. Tobita, welcome back. 
Good to be back. Good morning. Jeez, we're going to have to make you a panelist, Tobita. This, I believe <laughs> I was, I just saw your um, article that we had you on to discuss about Ukraine just appeared this morning online on In These Times and shared it out and was like, well, what do you know? And we've got Tobita on today to pick up another strand of conversation that we have been talking about regularly with Tobita, actually. The Ukraine was a slight, slight uh, a different road. Tobita, we've had you on numerous times to talk about and, and bring to light when we see anti-China, bashing of China for political gain uh, that only plays into concerns around um, what is very legitimately a lot of uh, anti-Asian hate that's going on and the connection that you're trying and uh, in, in light that uh, you at you and folks at uh, Justice is Global are trying to bring to this issue. Tell us more about this because we, we had you on specifically because the American prospect took issue with what you were saying, or at least was trying to push back and suggesting that you were being you know, overly broad in terms of accusing, um, in this case, uh, Tim Ryan from Ohio of being anti-Asian. Tell us more about what their essentially what their argument is and, you know, why why you think it, it, it falls very short. Yeah. Uh, so Congressman Tim Ryan is running for U.S. Senate in Ohio, uh, and he ran an ad uh, 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 an ad spot on uh, TV and social media. Uh, the main point of this ad is to uh, blame China for all the problems facing workers in Ohio and to sell himself as the one who's going to take on China on behalf of Ohio workers. Um, and this ad uh, faced immediate and severe criticism um, from a number of organizations uh, and leaders, uh, many of them uh, Asian American groups and leaders. Uh, Two big arguments uh, about the ad are first that um, it uh, feeds uh, anti-Asian racism, um, which uh, has been a growing trend uh, in the past couple of years. Uh, and second, that it's a self-defeating uh, messaging strategy that it actually plays into the messaging strategy um, of the Republican party. Um, and uh, this article in the American Prospect uh, took on the argument um, about racism um, and claimed that uh, those, those arguments that the ad uh, would have a racist impact are overblown. Um, I did not find those arguments uh, compelling. Uh, I thought there's also some distortion of the claims uh, from some of the, the critics um, claiming that uh, uh, we're engaging in apologetics on behalf of the Chinese government. Um, that I think that's a, just a, a very uncharitable interpretation of what we were saying. Toby, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come right back and dive into the details of this. Uh, you're listening to The Battleground Wisconsin. Welcome back to The Battleground Wisconsin. Folks, we're talking with Toby DeChow with Justices Global. Uh, Robert, I want to give you an opportunity to come in and ask a question and uh, dive into what Toby laid out. Hey, Toby, I'm glad you're doing this and, and bring this to light and trying to trying to make democratic politics and progressive politics more consistently progressive. Um, I can understand it's Robert Cutner wrote this article or, or Tim Ryan, the Congressman, where, where they're coming from. I just think we need to get to higher ground. And that is, you know, they're frustrated that this 
globalized corporate economy that has devastated working class people in Ohio, you go to a Youngstown, uh, that it's driven in part by a very powerful visceral dog whistle politics on race and immigration and other matters, which to, to divide the working class along racial lines, right? And so the allure here is, is that it's hard to make economic arguments that are compelling or to explain how the whole economy was taken over by an alliance of, of politicians of both parties who were taking the campaign cash and, uh, and the outcome leads to this country. That's hard to explain the economic transitions that have included that have just undercut work, the working class and done the race for the bottom are hard to explain, but it gives the same visceral un oomph if you say, and it's China, right? But what they're not really coping with is, is that when you invoke that emotion, that even if they're making, like Kuttner says, this argument about the economy, the fact, why does it, why does it powerful just to throw up China or say China without explanation or show a picture, threatening picture of the, of, you know, the central government in Beijing or some other scene with the red flags flying. The only reason it's visceral is because it taps into the same othering kind of rage, right? To blame the other. And that has consequences here for Asian Americans, a, a, a very large and important part of, the, of our community. It has consequences for us around the world because it encourages a huge arms race to try to encircle China or contain it, which prevents us from getting the money to do what we need to do to create a prosperous America. And quite frankly, independent of those specific effects, it just builds a kind of right-wing emotion that actually fuels fascism. In other words, it's like the Democrats who want to prove they're better on taxes or crime than Republicans. It's what Truman said. People will take the genuine article. And I think Kuttner and others need to, as you know, kind of tempting as it is to try to get the same level of emotion as the right, to understand that they are actually, they're using a dog whistle. And that that's the only reason you can just throw out chain a 30 second ad and it has an emotional impact. And they, and by the way, I'd also say outsourcing is more than going to China. It's more than going to the rest of the world. It's a lot of the outsourcing is here to non-union non, to, to non parts of the South or in the Milwaukee area, getting the jobs out to the suburbs and then making it the kind of manufacturing plants that can be quickly unassembled and moved to make sure there can never be a union. So there's, it, and it goes way beyond China. And I think I'll close on this. Yeah, China has exploited the situation. It's not a, it's not a, not a great regime. Uh, but the fact is, is that they didn't have the power to move our jobs over there. American corporations moved the jobs over there, right? That's the real motive factor. And so really it was a, uh, an alliance between the two. Why do we only talk about one side of it? And politicians like Bill Clinton went along, right? This is really bipartisan. But anyway, just to the point of, don't you think that this really is a dog whistle and that's the problem and the repercussions are just, are, are very anti-progressive and illiberal? Yeah, I, I think that is uh, exactly right. Uh, the reason the reasons why it feels like a powerful message is that it is tapping into uh, these power, powerful sentiments that are um, nationalistic and, and xenophobic um, and uh, can be deeply felt and feel politically powerful. Um, but when you tap into that stuff, what you're doing is you're feeding these fundamentally 
uh, right-wing uh, political sentiments. And um, uh, uh, communications researchers uh, did a round of, of testing uh, back in 2020 on a very similar uh, messaging strategy, the messaging strategy that was coming out of the Democratic Party. Uh, they tested some ads uh, that uh, used a, a, a message of um, attacking Trump uh, on his COVID response and accusing Trump of being uh, too close to or too soft on China in his COVID, uh, his COVID response. Um, and what they found is that uh, that messaging strategy, they tried a few different versions of it uh, in this research, um, it actually backfired uh, by pushing conflicted voters uh, away and towards Trump. And the explanation for why that happens is that um, even though you're presenting this anti-China narrative in the context of an ad that's attacking Trump, what it does is it feeds uh, these blame China tough on China um, narratives. And then once people get convinced of that, they look for the candidate who's gonna to be tough on China. And of course that pushes them to Trump. Um, it's, that is not terrain where Democrats can really compete with Republicans effectively. So Toby, one of the reasons I love your work and, and I think it's so centrally important is and why we're gonna have, I, I'm afraid we're gonna have you on too often because it's, it's we need to call it out when it happens. And we had you on before when Alex Lazary ran a similar ad. And so uh, folks, we can reference that if you want. But the reason I think this work is so important, we're super committed here at Citizen Action and have been for over two years now doing, you know, trying to do a form of canvassing and engagement with voters that actually takes on the othering, takes on the, the demonizing of immigrants, um, race baiting and actually engages people in those conversations to deal with the othering, to try and break down the power of the othering and get people to see the humanity of others. Because I'm, it's the only way we're going to build a, a durable, lasting, progressive movement that can actually govern in this country. And if we don't get serious about that, that's, and that's got to be a long-term effect, right? You, if folks think the redistricting maps are depressing, and they are, because that could be 10 years, this battle, this is a, a lifetime battle. And if we don't start getting serious about it and demanding our candidates understand that they can't do this, you know, we're just going to keep losing. Um, so I, I see the parallels, Toby, when we go out and try to have conversations about health care. And we tell them, well, what if immigrants are going to get access to the healthcare? And they go nuts, right? Like this plays into all of that. And it empowers that kind of thinking. Um, and we have to be working diligently to break it down because our governing prospects demand it. Toby? Yeah, I think that's uh, exactly right. Um, it's uh, like... You know, so like I said, there's two arguments here. One is about how this feeds uh, anti-Asian racism, and uh, you know that's against our political principles. It's not the right thing to do. Um, but it's more than that. It's more. It's not just about right and wrong. It's about what is strategic and what we need to do in order to win. And um, uh, this is a case. It's one of many cases uh, where uh, there's an argument about principle and like what's the morally right thing to do. Um, but 
that lines up perfectly with just like what is the strategic, practical, uh, effective uh, thing for us to do? Um, and uh, those two arguments are on the same side uh, on this one. I, I just say that it's a higher level. It's a more of a three-level chess. In other words, maybe you could win a particular race on it, but you can't win. We can't build a progressive America with these kind of emotions. And so you were talking about the short-term impact just not working against Trump, but even if it did work, uh, it backfires. And it, what it, it, the other thing I want to mention is it's an aversion as well, because we know populism is the best message, but the way to do the populism is to point at the people, the billionaires in this country who did all this and doing China as a way not to do that, right? right. And not to, and that That's doesn't it. lead you to the solution, right? Which is actually rebalancing our country using the power of our democracy. Yeah, this is critical. Um, so Republicans are on this uh, big push to rebrand themselves, the party of the working class. There are strategy memos about this. Um, and that ought to seem uh, like a fool's errand because this is the party that has always promoted pro-corporate anti-worker legislation that has opposed across the board any pro-worker legislation in the current Congress. Uh, they have opposed um, every element of uh, Biden's uh, very bold pro-worker agenda, uh, raising the minimum wage, um, making it easier for workers to organize a union. Uh, they've opposed the job creation provisions in the Build Back Better uh, package. Um, all of these are very powerful pro-worker policies and Republicans have, uh, uh, as a block, opposed every one of them. Uh, this is the party of the bosses. This is the party of corporate power. Um, and they work with corporate lobbies to defeat any measure that uh, could shift wealth and power away from corporations and to the working class. Um, so how can they possibly imagine that they can now position themselves as the party of the working class? Uh, they're very explicit about this. Um, scapegoating China for the problems facing US workers is a key part of that strategy. If they can convince voters to blame China rather than the corporate lobbies and the, the politicians in league with them for the problems facing US workers, then they can win and claim uh, the, the brand of the party of the working class. So there, there you have it, folks. This is immorally wrong. It sparks hate, which is very real and impacts people directly every day in this country. It is strategically wrong for us to be doing this to try to build the kind of movement and the kind of country we want. Tabita Chow, thank you so much for taking the time to join us and for writing this article and making sure that we have this debate um, uh, in, in this country, but also within the Democratic Party, broadly speaking, the progressive movement too. Thank you, Tobita. Thank you. With that, folks, we got to wrap up this Battleground Wisconsin. We also want to thank Hannah Ferris. Huh. Also within these times, folks, you, uh, you're getting a little bit of a drift here. You ought to be reading in these times magazine and you ought to be listening to the Battleground Wisconsin. But folks, we'll see you next week for Battleground Wisconsin. <laughs>